You're listening to sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gccugene.org. So this morning we have the privilege of hearing from a guest preacher. I'm going to go ahead and bring Sean. You can just come on up here. So this is Sean Duncan. Uh, Sean and I have known each other for, I think, getting close to 10 years. We met in college. We went to seminary together. Uh, we served in youth ministry at University Fellowship Church together for a long time. Sean is now the college pastor over at UFC. Uh, he's preached here before. He came last year and preached, and we decided to have him back. So um, Sean is married to his wife, Chelsea, who's here. They have a daughter, Noah, who's almost two, and then their second child, a son, Calvin, was just born on Tuesday. So less than a week old, and he's here. This is the, yeah, congratulations. This is the first of many sermons that uh, Calvin's going to hear from his dad. So uh, Sean loves Jesus. He loves his family well, and he loves the bride of Christ. And so I'm super honored and and thankful to have him here preaching the word for us this morning. So I'll turn it over to you. Thanks, Brad. Thank you for having me. Uh, If you're a guest this morning, I hope you've felt as welcome as I have felt welcomed here. I love this church. I'm a a, a far off distant family. I follow you guys on Instagram. I listen to all the podcasts. I'm a fan of Gospel Community Church because Jesus is a fan of Gospel Community Church. He loves this church. So even though a lot of you I don't know, uh, I can love you because Christ loves you. So Um, Although I could tell you a lot about me today, I want to tell you a lot about Jesus. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 18. Being a guest speaker, I get to do something a little bit different. Usually Matthew 18, that's one of those passages, one of those chapters where maybe the preacher will spend five or six weeks in it. But today we're going to spend one morning looking at the entire chapter. So as you're turning to Matthew 18, I have a question for you. Have you ever heard of RH incompatibility? I had never heard of it until having kids. Um, RH incompatibility basically is referring to your blood type. When you have a positive blood type, like I'm A positive, that positive is referring to the RH. And then if you're negative, it's referring to the lack of the RH factor. Basically, it's just a protein that's attached to your red blood cells. Well, there's kind of a problem, I'm told, that when the wife or when the mom is a negative blood type, but the baby is a positive blood type, the mom will begin to produce antibodies that attack the protein, and that antibody can then attack the baby. So it can be very dangerous, even deadly for the baby, but there's ways to treat it. It's just a a simple shot that I'm told in the butt takes care of it right away. But there are things in this world that are dangerous and deadly, like things in us, like sometimes our blood type, things like cancer that can dwell in us, but then also things that are outside of us, like wars and famines. There are things in our life that threaten us that are deadly and dangerous. But like RH incompatibility, there is often a way to deal with it and to protect against it. So this morning I have a simple but big question to ask that I think the text answers for us, and that is how do you deal with the most dangerous and deadly thing in the world? Before I read verses 1 through 9, let me pray for us. Father, I'm thankful for this opportunity to be here with Gospel Community Church. God, you know every single person in this room. You know how many hairs are on their heads. You know how many sorrows are in their hearts. So God, you know exactly what we need, and you can provide that for us. So God, we ask that this morning you would open our eyes to see and our our hearts to understand. And God, that you would cause us to believe the good news of the gospel. 
So God, lead us this morning and show us your grace and your mercy and your love for us from your word. We need you and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 18, starting in verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom temptations come. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Sin is the most dangerous and deadly thing in the world. Sin is so dangerous and so deadly that Jesus doesn't just warn against sin, but also what could cause sin or lead to sin. We're currently teaching our daughter street smarts. She's almost two. So, you know, things like don't run into the streets and look both ways before crossing the street and hold mom and dad's hand when crossing the street. And the street's not the problem. It's what's potentially in the streets, you know, like cars and trucks and buses. Because if they hit you, they will kill you. Moving vehicles are so dangerous that we warn our children about the places where danger is even a potential possibility. So Jesus also warns us, not just about sin, but also the streets that sin may come accelerating down. Sin is the most dangerous and deadly thing in the world, and Jesus is going to teach us how to deal with it. But before we get there, I want to help us see sin a little bit more like Jesus sees it. Because although we might sit here and be like, well, yeah, sin is a problem, we might not actually believe in our hearts that it is. So here, I'm going to give you 10 statements about sin. It's not an exhaustive list, but hopefully it's robust enough to help us see sin closer to the way Jesus does. So note takers, type A's, like this is your moment to shine, all right? 10 statements about sin. Number one, sin is rebellion from God. It's a resistance and a refusal to do and to be what God has called us to be and to do. Number two, Sin is rejection of God. It's like a hormone-enraged teenager, not just yelling at mom or dad, I hate your rules, but screaming at the top of their lungs, I hate you, and I wish you were dead. Rebellion hates God's law, but rejection hates God. Number three, sin is failure. Sin is a failure to love God and to love each other as we should. It's not just hatred and denial. It's also just an inability. My irrational fear, maybe you have this too late at night laying in bed. My irrational fear is that my family would be taken hostage and their lives would be at stake. And the only way to save them would be to run a foreman in 32nd mile. Anyone? Sub seven? Of course. Sub six? Maybe. 
Sub five, not a chance. I would run as hard as I can with tears streaming down my face and I wouldn't even get close to that. I would fail to meet the requirements, not because a 430 mile is impossible. I mean, there's people in this room who have done sub 430 miles, just saying, trying to find them. Not because a 430 mile is impossible to run, but because I have the inability to do it. We fail to love God and we fail to love each other as we should, not because the standard is impossible, but because we personally are incapable of meeting the standard. There's a possible standard, yet despite even our effort, we fail to meet the mark. Number four, sin is deviation from God's design. It's any departure or digression or deflection from the will of God. Yes, sin is doing the wrong thing, but sin is also not doing the right thing. Sin is deviation from God's design for our life, for our behavior, for our bodies, for our sexuality, for our attitudes, and even our passions. It is sin. Number five, sin is universal. Sin has affected everyone, you and me and everyone you've ever met. Luke Bryan once sang, I believe most people are good and most mamas ought to qualify for sainthood. And while that makes for some good old rootin' tootin' country music, that makes for some horrible and horrendous theology. No one is good except for God. And although people may do good things, that does not mean that they are good. Number six, sin is pervasive. It's not just universal. It's not just that everyone has been affected by sin, but that sin has affected every part of everyone. Every aspect of humanity has been affected by sin. So everything humanity does is sinful. Everything. This isn't to say that humans are as evil or as wicked as they could possibly be at all times, but rather that sin has permeated and infiltrated and tainted all that humanity is and does. Let me give you an illustration to help. Uh, imagine you're going home today. It's going to be in the mid-90s, I think. And you're, you're going home. There's the local kids, and they have a lemonade shop. And you're like, oh, this is great. You know, I'll, I'll support a local business, and I'll get a refreshing drink. And you go up to them. You start digging into your wallet. You start talking to them. And you're like, hey, tell me about your process as you're trying to find your money. And they start telling you, they're like, well, sir, uh, I start with three cups of sugar. And you're like, oh, good, good, good. And then I take four cups of fresh squeezed lemonade. It takes about it takes about 20 large lemons to do that. You're like, oh, good, good, good. Still trying to find that money. And they're like, and then, sir, then I take 12 cups of ice cold water. And you're like, oh, nice, nice. And then, you're like, and then, and then one cup of urine. Would you buy it? Would you drink it? Oh, it's only 5% of the cup of lemonade is actually urine. Would you drink that? Of course not. Because the pee has permeated all of the lemonade ruining all of it. And that is what sin does to us. So that visceral picture, no one in their right mind would drink that lemonade. That visceral picture captures the grotesque nature of the pervasiveness of sin. It's permeated all of who we are and what we do. Number seven, sin separates us. Like when a husband and wife divorce and then animosity is born between the two parties. The once warm relationship is now cold and sour. The once natural conversations are now clunky and painful and nearly non-existent. Sin separates us relationally from God and sin also separates us relationally from each other. Maybe you've experienced that before. Number eight, sin condemns us. 
our natural legal status because of sin is guilty. On the day of judgment, if we stand before God according to our own merit, we will be found guilty and sentenced to eternal punishment. All sin equally condemns us. And you might say, well, Sean, how can that be? You know, I'm not a moral monster. I'm not Hitler. I, I sometimes do things I shouldn't do or say things I shouldn't say, or sometimes I think bad things. Well, let me explain that. So you see, if you came into my house and you walked into my kitchen and you opened up my fridge and you, you got an egg out of my fridge and you cracked it against my will, I might look at you confused, maybe frustrated. However, if you walked into a museum and you went and grabbed a Fabergé egg and you cracked that egg, you would be arrested and you would probably face a fine for the value of that egg, which is around $33 million. You see, it's not the action of the crime, but the value of what or who the crime is against. We have sinned against an eternal God. So it's not the action of our sin, but rather who our sin is committed against. Our crime is against an eternal God, and that is why we face an eternal punishment. Number nine, sin corrupts us. Sin corrupts us. Like a computer virus that affects the whole system, sin causes moral and spiritual decay in us, and it twists our programming, as it were. Sin distorts our view of reality so that we call evil things good, and we call good things evil. And number 10, sin kills us. Sin kills us. God told Adam not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. On that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Well, it was far worse than expected. Adam and Eve ate from that tree. And that day they walked out of the garden, physically alive, but spiritually dead on the spot. There was just merely a lag time until the physical death caught up to the spiritual reality. You see, God is the source of life, but sin severs us from God. Sin causes spiritual death. It causes physical death. And because of sin, one day there will be eternal death in the lake of fire. Sin has cut us off from God who is the source of life. So we are left destined for eternal death. That's 10 statements on sin. Sin is ugly, it's costly, it's insurmountable. It's a huge problem. And if sin is that bad, and it is, then how could we ever deal with it? How could we ever deal with the most dangerous and deadly thing in the world? Well, there's no checklist. There's no religious performance. There's no church attendance quota to make. There's no life change that you can do that will save you from the death that awaits but there is a way to be saved. So look again at verse three, what Jesus said to them. Jesus said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. To become like children means to recognize your absolute need for Jesus and to depend fully on Christ for salvation. I'll say it again because I think it's important. To become like children means to recognize your absolute need for Jesus and to depend fully on Christ for salvation. 
When my two-year-old is hungry, she doesn't like go and make herself a steak. She cries out, mom, mom, and mom can get her a bar from the cupboard because it's too high for her to reach. She's fully dependent on someone else. That's what it means to become like a child is to depend fully on Jesus, recognizing our absolute need. Jesus is the way to be saved from sin. The only way to deal with the deadliness of sin is to depend on Jesus. He suffered the death that sin deserves on the cross. He paid the penalty for all of your past and present and future sin. He was resurrected from the dead so that you could be declared righteous before God through faith. Our sin problem can only be forgiven and solved through faith in Jesus. Your sin will kill you unless you let Jesus kill your sin. So trust Jesus in faith. If you're here this morning and you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, I just want to leave you something to think about today. My question is this, where did everything come from? Where did you come from and where did I come from and where did the universe come from? I'm here because I was caused through my parents, you know, birds and the bees, So we live in a universe of causation. Where did the universe come from? I would suggest that everything was created by the uncaused cause, which is God. And if there is a God, if there is a God, then we are all accountable for our life. So ponder this afternoon, where did everything come from? But for those of us here who have believed the good news of Jesus, we have been saved from the penalty of sin, which is eternal death. But there's still danger when it comes to sin for Jesus' followers. Yes, we've been saved from the death of sin, but Jesus is also protecting us from the danger of sin. So how does Jesus teach believers, teach the church to deal with sin in light of its ongoing danger? In Matthew 18, Jesus gives Christians five tactics to protect us from the danger of sin. So five tactics, that's what we're going to pull out of Matthew 18. Number one, avoid causing sin. Look at verse six again. But whoever causes one of these little ones, a disciple, a follower of Jesus, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Would you rather... Would you rather convince your coworker to lie on their financial report or be strangled and drowned at the same time until you die? Because according to Jesus, the better option is to suffer the brutal death. And what if Jesus is serious? What if he's actually being serious with that? If that's true, and it is, then as followers of Jesus, we should never be cavalier with what could potentially cause someone else to sin. It's cruel to put obstacles in front of people so that they fall and get hurt. So why would we do that with what could lead to sin? You know, your friend struggles with drunkenness. Why would you keep offering him drinks? Why would you keep inviting her out to the bars? Your friend struggles with slander and gossip, both sin, by the way, in scripture. Why would you ask pointed questions like, hey, is that coworker still annoying you? Parents, are you planning on giving your child one of these? without talking to them at all, having restrictions or parameters or expectations. A phone gives access to the entire world. This phone is 
a door, a good door to quick communication and connectivity, but it's also a gate to pornography and bullying and predators and distorted body image and eating disorders and gender fluidity, self-harm, suicidal ideations, and countless other things. So don't just give unhindered access to the world. At least talk to your kids and have expectations. Don't just blindside them with a stumbling block. It's never too late to start talking about what's going on on the phone. Tactic number two, tactic number two in Matthew 18, avoid committing sin. And these might just seem like no-brainers. Avoid causing sin, avoid committing sin. But look at verses eight and nine. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. I remember hearing uh, my pastor in college say something along the lines of, it would be better to hop into heaven looking like a pirate than to waltz into hell. It was true then, it's true now. It's just a disclaimer about this text. Jesus is not instructing us to self-mutilate ourselves. Because sin isn't caused by the eye, right? It's not caused by your eye or your hand or your foot. It emanates from the heart. So while Jesus isn't giving instruction to self-mutilate ourselves, he is being completely serious about the severity of sin. Due to the severity and the danger of sin, any sacrifice is worth making to keep ourselves back from sin. Highly inconveniencing yourself is worth it if it keeps you from sinning. Friends, it will always be better to suffer than to sin. So take drastic steps to avoid sinning and the temptation to sin. Stop charging your phone in your room at night. Get a dummy phone if need be. Stop going out to the bar if that's the epicenter of many sins for you. Don't take the promotion at work if it means you're going to neglect your family and worship the idol of money and success. So please don't cut off your hand or your foot. That's not what this text is saying. But maybe you should cut a hobby cut out a TV show, or cut off an unhealthy relationship. I promise it will always be worth the sacrifice and suffering if it keeps you from sin, especially 200 million years from now. Being serious about your holiness, it doesn't make you a Pharisee. It makes you a Christian. Christians are called to care about their holiness. So first two tactics, avoid causing sin, avoid committing sin. But this isn't to say that Jesus expects sinlessness from us. In fact, Jesus anticipates that we will sin. The rest of this chapter is about what to do when we fall into sin or when another Christian sins, especially when it's against us. So now look with me, starting in verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, meaning a Christian who has fallen into sin. See that you do not despise one of these Christians who has fallen into sin. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does, not, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. This paragraph right here, it's the heart of Matthew 18. 
Everything flows into it and everything flows out of it. This parable is about a sheep that goes astray and a shepherd who then finds the sheep because Matthew 18 is about how we go astray and about how Jesus finds us so that we don't perish. If I had to summarize all of Matthew 18 into a single sentence, it would be this. Jesus protects his sheep from perishing in sin. Jesus protects his sheep from perishing in sin. You might be familiar with the parable of the lost sheep in Luke 15. That's about a sinner coming to faith and receiving eternal life. But here in Matthew 18, we aren't dealing with a lost sheep. We're dealing with an astray sheep. This is about a Christian. This is about someone who has come to faith in Jesus, someone who has repented and believed, someone who's received eternal life, but now this Christian is falling into sin. They're going astray, as it were. But verse 12 and 13 shows us that our good shepherd, Jesus, he goes, searches, and finds the stumbling Christian. And when he does, he rejoices over them. Jesus is personally involved with joy to rescue us from the danger of our sin. So let me show you how Jesus, the shepherd, personally goes after the stray sheep and saves the Christian who has fallen into sin. How he goes after you. Verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. The way the shepherd goes after the stray sheep is he sends you. That's how he goes after the straying sheep who has fallen into sin as he sends you. And not only does he send you, but keep reading with me, verses 16 and 17. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Not only does Jesus send you, but he will send y'all, the church, to seek and to save the straying sheep. The goal is to gain back a brother or sister so that they don't perish in their sin. There's much more that we could say about verses 16 through 20, but what I want you to see is the tactics Jesus is giving for us to deal with sin. Tactic number three, confront sin. Confront sin. Verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Confront sin. You've probably experienced this, but there are few things in this life that require more courage than confronting someone about their sin. Let me say something to the person being confronted, but then also to the person who confronts. To the person being confronted, if your brother or sister in Christ comes to confront you about your sin, don't get defensive. Instead, grieve your sin, but rejoice. Because that's the shepherd, Jesus Christ, seeking you out and bringing you back in love. Listen to the call of the shepherd. And to the person who's doing the confronting, I'd say this, you should not love confronting people about their sin. If you do, you're like, I love confronting people about their sin. You're doing it wrong and for the wrong reason. You shouldn't love confronting people for their sin, but you should love them enough to do it. 
It is a very loving thing to confront someone about their sin because if they're left in that, they'll perish. Confronting someone's sin is challenging to do. To you, I want you to know that Jesus cares so much about this that not only does he personally send you, he's personally present with you according to verse 20. We have an obligation as Christians, as the church, we have an obligation to each other to confront each other's sin. You probably talk about this in your membership classes and in your membership meetings. This is a responsibility that we have to each other, especially when someone has sinned against us. So when confronting someone about their sins, here's a few things to remember. You should remember, be confident that scripture calls it sin. Don't confuse your personal preferences with scripture's prescription. If you're not sure what scripture calls sin, you could go to Ephesians 4 and 5. You could go to Colossians 3, Galatians 5, 1 Peter 4. There's just lists. You could walk through it and be like, is this thing that I think is sin? Is it actually sin? So be confident scripture calls it sin. Also, something to remember, be clear about what happened. Clarity is kindness, so don't like beat around the bush and be vague. And finally, remember, be committed to their good, not their punishment. In verse 10, Jesus says, don't despise one of these little ones, someone who's fallen into sin. Don't despise them. Don't make them pay for what Jesus already has. If Jesus is seeking to save them, so should we. But if you notice in verse 15, there's two sides of this coin, right? It's not just someone confronting someone else about their sin, Look again at verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So tactic number four, repent of sin. Repent of sin. Yes, we need to confront each other's sin. But when we're confronted, we need to repent. Repentance, here's what repentance sounds like. You're right. I sinned. I'm sorry, will you forgive me? That's what repentance sounds like. You're right. Like an actual agreement with the claim about what is being brought before you. The charge. You did this. You're right. I did do that. But not just agreement, also confession. Not just, yeah, I did that, but yeah, I did that. And that is sin. And that is wrong. And I shouldn't have done that. But then also, I'm sorry. There's a sense of remorse and grief about the sin that you've committed against someone. You, you, you lament it. You say, I'm sorry. But that's not the end. It's not just about making yourself feel bad enough and somehow paying like emotional penance for your sin. It doesn't end there. It ends with, will you forgive me? There's actually a desire for relational restoration. Apologies are ruined when they're accompanied by excuses. So take responsibility for your sin, ask for forgiveness, and walk in repentance. We shouldn't be repenting only when confronted for our sin. Repentance should be a natural rhythm of our Christian life. God is faithful and just to forgive us of all sin and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness when we confess. The repenting Christian is the happy Christian, and the non-repenting Christian doesn't exist. Christians are not defined by the absence of sin. We're defined by the presence of repentance. But if I confront you for your sin and then you repent and ask for forgiveness, well, now the ball's back in my court. And Peter realizes this. Look at verses 21 and 22. Then Peter came up and he said to him, Lord, 
How often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. So how does Jesus teach us to deal with sin? Tactic number five, forgive the sinner. Forgive the sinner. 77 times, it's not actually a limit Jesus is giving, but rather he's saying, Peter, you're going to have to forgive exponentially more times than you could ever imagine. If they repent, you forgive. Forgiveness is what makes void the power of sin. Forgiveness is what protects us from the destruction of sin. Forgiveness is what God gives us to free us and to free others from the weight of relational failure. In all cases, when you're sinned against, you can either forgive or you can resent. Forgiveness, it doesn't excuse the sin. It keeps the sin from destroying your heart. Resentment, on the other hand, resentment might taste good, but it tastes like fudge laced with cyanide. It will slowly and painfully kill you. At the end of the day, forgiveness means not making the offending party pay for the sins they committed. Forgiveness always comes at a cost to the one granting forgiveness. To not retaliate means to absorb the cost in yourself. So how could any of us do this? And why would we do this? Why would we do this? Why would we forgive one another over and over and over again? To answer that, Jesus tells a story and it goes something like this. There was a king who decided to settle his accounts and a man was brought before the king who had an insurmountable debt, 200,000 years worth of debt and with no possible way to pay. And since he couldn't pay, the king decides, I'm going to sell this man. I'm going to sell his wife and his kids and all of his possessions just so I can get a fraction back that I am owed. So the man falls on his knees and starts begging and pleading to the king, have patience with me, have patience with me, give me more time to pay. But patience won't help this man because he needs 200,000 years to work off this debt. So the king gives him something better than patience. The king gives him mercy. The compassionate king absorbs the high cost and the debt into himself and he forgives the man of the insurmountable debt. So that man starts going on his way home. And as he's going home, he sees across the street, his buddy, George, and he had lent George a few months rent. George hasn't paid him back. So all of a sudden he runs across the street and he pushes George down and starts choking George and says, pay what you owe to me. And George just starts begging, give me more time. Be patient with me, please, please. I'll pay. I'll pay. If you don't have my money, you're going to jail. He throws him in jail and he makes him pay the cost. Meanwhile, the king finds out about what the man did. He summons the man. He says this, starting in verse 32. You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailer until he should pay all his debt. So also, Jesus says, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. C.S. Lewis said, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable in others because Christ has forgiven the inexcusable in us. 
we can and we must forgive each other over and over and over again because God has forgiven us of a far greater debt. Our sin is worse than having 200,000 years worth of debt. You owe billions of dollars and you make minimum wage. You don't need a payment plan. You need debt forgiveness. Remember, forgiveness always comes at a cost to the one granting forgiveness. So to grant forgiveness, God stepped into this world 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ. And he lived a sinless life. And then he died the death that you and I deserve on the cross. God can forgive our sin because Jesus paid the penalty on the cross. Jesus died on the cross to pay our debt of sin. And if you believe that and you follow Jesus, you're forgiven of all the debt of your sin, past, present, and future. The gospel is the good news that Jesus paid your insurmountable debt. To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable in others because Christ has forgiven the inexcusable in us. The only way we will ever be able to do this is if we believe the gospel and live in response to the gospel. Sin is deadly, but through Jesus, we have life. And sin is dangerous, but through these five tactics, Jesus strips sin of its power and he protects us from its danger. So avoid causing sin, avoid committing sin, confront sin, repent of sin, and forgive sin. Our sin is great, but Jesus is so much greater. He is so much greater. I want to end by telling you one more thing about my daughter. So She's a few months shy of two. She loves going on walks. So my wife and I make lots of trips around the neighborhood. And I told you earlier, you know, we're teaching her street smarts. So she holds mom and dad's hands when we're walking through the street. And one of the best parts about walks and walking through the street is when we start getting close to the curb, all of a sudden we start counting. Maybe you, you remember this as a kid or if you have kids. We start counting. One, two, three, jump! And she soars into the sky. Her feet leave the ground. She has this huge grin on her face and then she lands and safely on the ground. That's what Christ does with us. He says, jump. And our feet come off the ground. We go soaring through the sky. But it's Jesus who lifts us. Avoid causing sin. Avoid committing sin. Confront sin. Repent of sin. Forgive sin. But know that it's the pierced hands of Jesus, by his grace, who lifts you to do it. Let me pray for us, and then Brad will lead us in communion. Jesus, we are thankful that you protect your sheep from perishing in sin. We are thankful that your pierced hands hold us. And we are thankful that by your grace, the curse of sin has no hold on us. Death has no sting left for us. And you protect us from the danger of perishing. God, I'm thankful for Gospel Community Church. I I pray for them that you would protect them, that you would bless them, that you would make your face shine upon them. God, you're so gracious to us. Our sin is great, but Jesus, you are so much greater. So we thank you for that. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.